This evening's reading is from John, chapter 16, and verses 5 to 15. And it's on page 1084 of the Bibles. That's John, chapter 16, and starting at verse 5. Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your, your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. This is the word of the Lord. So we're looking at the authority of uh, Scripture. And if you were here on the 6th of December in the evening, we uh, had, um, we looked at part one, and we were trying to answer for ourselves the question, why do we submit to the authority of scripture in our thinking and our behavior? And I've put the outline that we had then on, and we're just looking at part two this evening, which is a slightly shorter part, but only slightly. To recap, we saw that God revealed himself and he arranged for that revelation to be recorded and he attested the recorders like Moses, Elijah, Elisha, who were the first prophets, with an astonishing ability to do miracles. And we touched how where that record can be corroborated from other ancient Near Eastern sources, it was verified. And we also touched on how its transmission down the centuries has been preserved by the copyists uh, accurately. And then uh, finally and conclusively, we saw that Jesus endorsed the authority of the Old Testament by submitting to its authority in his personal conduct, how he lived, in fulfilling his mission, what he came to do, and when he had controversial debates with Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. But what about the New Testament? How do we come to recognize the authority of the New Testament? Well, Christ does make provision for it, but not surprisingly, his way of endorsing it um, was, of course, different from how he endorsed the Old Testament 
because, of course, the New Testament hadn't been written until he started saying things and doing things. I suppose it's quite likely that, given how remarkable a person he was, people had started to write down some of the things he said on various sort of scraps. But the Gospels, as we have them, weren't written until after his death, resurrection and ascension. So, how does he make provision for the New Testament? And how can it be authoritative for us? And the answer lies in the appointment of the apostles. In the Old Testament, God acted in redeeming and judging Israel, and he himself had raised up prophets to give a true record and interpretation of what he was doing. Now, in the first century AD, God was active through Jesus Christ in redeeming and judging the world once again. And so similarly, there needed to be authoritative writers and interpreters of that revelation as well. So Jesus made provision for this. He carefully chose and appointed and then went on to train and authorise the 12 apostles to be his witnesses, just as God had chosen the prophets in the Old Testament to do just the same line of work. So, we read in uh, Luke that on one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them whom he designated apostles. Now, all the followers of Jesus are called disciples, but only the 12 are named as apostles. In the New Testament, there are apostles of the churches who are Christian evangelists and teachers who were sent from one congregation to another. And there are quite a few of those. But there were also the apostles of Christ who were a much smaller restricted circle consisting of the 12. And then there was Matthias who was uh, the replacement for Judas. And then there was Paul. And then there was James the Lord's brother and perhaps one or two others. And these apostles were to be his personal representatives, endowed with his authority to speak in his name. When he sent them out, he said to them, he who receives you, receives me. Now these apostles of Jesus appeared to have been rather unique in four ways. First of all, they had been personally called and authorised by Jesus. This was clear in the case of the Twelve, and Paul claimed something comparable. And he was very strong in asserting his apostolic authority, insisting that he had received his commission to be an apostle, not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Secondly, they had an eyewitness experience of Christ. The twelve were appointed, Mark says, to be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Now their essential qualification for the work of apostleship was to be with him. Similarly, shortly before he died, Jesus said to them, you must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. So he gave them 
over those three years, unrivaled opportunities to hear his teaching and to see his works so that they might later be able to bear witness to what they had seen and heard. And it was especially important for them to have been witnesses of the resurrection. It was on the basis of that that they chose Matthias um, to take over the apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs, Luke says in Acts 1. Now it's true, of course, that Paul was not one of those original 12 apostles, that he did not have the eyewitness experience of Jesus, which they had had, and he may or may not have encountered Jesus in the flesh. He did go down to Jerusalem to go to university from Tarsus in northern Syria, and it was probably at the same time that Jesus was active. But we don't know for certain whether he ever encountered Jesus in the flesh. But he does say that he received the gospel by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now that may have been in the three years he spent in the Arabian desert. We can't be certain. However, he can, we can be certain that he fulfilled the second apostolic qualification of being an eyewitness of the resurrection. He writes... Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And in 1 Corinthians 9.1, he has a reference to his encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road. And although it took place after the ascension of Christ and was therefore abnormal, nevertheless he claims that it was an actual, objective, resurrection appearance. And he adds that it was the last. He adds it at the end of his list of all the resurrection appearances. He writes, last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. He doesn't mean that uh, he had some kind of handicap. He means that um, he was born, if you like, a bit late to encounter. He, it, wasn't that he, it wasn't that he was around at the time up in the Galilee. For those three years, Jesus was up there. And thirdly, they had extraordinary inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All Christians have the indwelling of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of Christ lives, dwells within us if we're believers. And the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds. You know, it's, we're all in the dark. It's as if the Holy Spirit turns the light bulb on and we're able to see clearly. So all Christians have the indwelling and illuminating presence of the Holy Spirit as simply because we're all God's children. And this uh, privilege was not restricted to the apostles. But nevertheless, the ministry of the Spirit which Christ promised the apostles was something quite unique. And that should be clear from these uh, words in John 14. Perhaps you'd be good enough to look up page 1082. John 14, 25 and 26. And notice the emphasis I put on the word you. All this I have spoken while still with you, Jesus says, speaking to the twelve in the upper room. But the counsellor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. And then turn over to page 1084, to chapter 16, verse 12 and 13. 
Uh, Jesus goes on. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, these wonderful promises have sometimes been applied to all Christian people, and doubtless they are in a secondary uh, sense. But their primary reference is evidently to the apostles who were gathered around Jesus in the upper room, of whom he could say, all this I have spoken to you while still with you, and I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. What he promises them is two things. First, that the Holy Spirit would remind them of his teaching that he'd given to them. And secondly, that he would supplement it, leading them into all truth, which they, at the time, could not receive, partly because much of it hadn't yet happened. The major fulfilment of those promises was in writing the New Testament, the Gospels and the Epistles. And then the fourth way in which they were unique was their power to work miracles. The book of Acts is often, the longer title is the Acts of the Apostles. In other words, it's what they do. And they do about ten miracles in the book of Acts. And Paul designates the signs and wonders and miracles which had been performed amongst them as things which mark out an apostle. 2 Corinthians 12.12 is the, the reference. This doesn't mean that every single miracle was performed by an apostle. Stephen and Philip were not apostles, yet they both are recorded as doing a miracle. But rather that the major purpose of the miraculous power given to the apostles was to authenticate their apostolic commission and message. The writer to the Hebrews, whoever he was, writes, this salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, that is, the apostolic eyewitnesses. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. So in those four ways, the apostles of Christ seem to have been unique. So we move on to the apostles' authority being confirmed or recognised. And it's recognised in two ways. First of all, they seem to know it themselves. So in the New Testament, we see them exhibit their self-conscious apostolic authority. As we've seen, Paul strongly asserts his apostolic authority. If you turn to page 1190, 1190, it's two Thessalonians. You know, you'll see it. He really kind of drills it in. This is, a, this is a letter of only three chapters. And he spends one of it drilling this message really well and truly home to them. So if you find 2 Thessalonians 3 and start at verse 4, we find him saying... We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command you. Verse 6, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. I think it's verse 10, unless it's 8, and I've got my numbers out of order, but you'll have to work it out. Um, 
Then he says, such people, I think in verse 12, we command and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Well, who are the we that he's referring to? Well, he's referring to all of the apostles, the authority that they have individually and collectively. And who is it who presumes to issue these authoritative commands and demands for obedience? Well, they are apostles of Christ who speak in the name of Christ. He claims that Christ is speaking through them, the apostles, to his readers. As a result, when he first visited Galatia, that's the southern part of uh, Turkey, although he was disfigured by illness, the Galatians didn't scorn him or despised him, but actually received him, he writes, as an angel of God. That's a messenger of God. They received him, he says, as Christ Jesus. Galatians 4.14. He has an incredibly high view as the position that he occupies and, as do, uh, as, and the other apostles, and yet he exercises a humility with it. He doesn't rebuke these Galatians for what sounds almost like they're sucking up to him. On the contrary, they were right to receive him in this way, for he was an apostle, an ambassador, an authorised representative of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle John also used the plural of apostolic authority in his letters, 3 John 9. And he constantly record, uh, record his, his readers to the original teaching he had given to them. He says, in the view of the prevalence of false teachers that were around at the time he's writing, he dared even to write this. Imagine it from the lips of a human being. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. In other words, he's saying, if his readers want to discern between truth and error, they should compare what he had taught them with what these new teachers on the scene were propounding. False teachers would show their error by not listening to John, while the true Christian would authenticate himself by his submission to the apostles' authority. And the second way in which uh, their unique authority as apostles was substantiated was because the early church recognised it. So in that period just after John, John died in the 90s AD, yeah, around about 110, there was a bishop in Antioch called Ignatius, and he sent several letters around the churches of Turkey and uh, southern Europe. In his letter to the Christians in Rome, chapter 4, he writes, I do not, as Peter and Paul, issue commandments to you. They were apostles. I am but a condemned man. He was a bishop, um, but he recognised even the authority he had was in no way comparable to that of the apostles. When in the fourth century, the church came finally to settle on which books should make up the New Testament um, and which should be excluded, the test they used was whether the book 
had been written by an apostle or that an apostle was the primary source behind it, as in the case of Mark's gospel, which basically Peter was the primary source. Irenaeus refers to Mark as the interpreter of Peter, who faithfully recorded Peter's memories of Christ and the substance of his preaching. So the church wasn't conferring authority on the books of the New Testament. It was simply recognising the, the authority that they already possessed. So let's summarise the argument. Christ endorsed, um, Christ endorsed the authority of the Old Testament. He made provision for the New Testament by authorising uh, the apostles to teach in his name. Therefore, if we desire to bow to Christ's authority, we must bow to scriptures. And it's because of Jesus Christ that Christians submit to both the Old and the New Testament. Well, are there any alternatives to that? Well, there are only two, really. The first is to say that Christ was mistaken in his view of Scripture. <clears throat> in this case, the argument would go something like this. The incarnation, when Jesus came down to to earth to live and grow up, that he was imprisoned in the limited mindset of a first century Jew. He couldn't think outside the, that, that box. Of course he accepted the authority of scripture because that's what Jews of the first century did. But that's no reason why we should. Their view and his view, it's argued, is outmoded. It's called the kenosis theory because uh, the Greek word Kenosis means emptied himself, Philippians 2, 7, when he became man. Now, it's certainly true that when Christ, when God became man, that he emptied himself of his glory when he took the form of a servant. But he'd not emptied himself of his deity in becoming a human being. And although as a human being he seems to have been ignorant of certain matters, such as the date of his return, the remarkable fact is that he was not ignorant of his ignorance. He knew he didn't know. He knew the limits of his knowledge and consequently in his instruction he never strayed beyond these limits. On the contrary, he insisted that he taught only what the Father gave him to teach. Therefore, we can claim that he is inerrant, which means he's without error in all that he affirms that all his teaching was true, including his endorsement of the authority of Scripture. And the second alternative, which has been proposed by some, goes like this. Jesus knew perfectly well that Scripture was not entirely the Word of God. And so uh, it wasn't reliable. Yet because his contemporaries believed it, he accommodated himself to their position. You know, he knew it wasn't all true, but he lived in their culture, he went along with that. But there's no need for us to do so, some would try and argue. The late Dr. John Stott said of this suggestion, it is really intolerable, it is derogatory to Christ. You see, it's incompatible with his claim to be the truth and to teach the truth. If he knows it to be a lie, 
Besides, he never hesitated to disagree with his contemporaries on other matters, so why should he have done so on this one? And further, this reconstruction would attribute to Jesus the very thing he detested, hypocrisy. Saying one thing, but really believing and doing another. So we have to reject both those theories, kenosis and accommodation, and over against them we must insist that Jesus knew what he was talking about, and he meant it. He taught knowledgeably, deliberately, and with entire sincerity. He declared the divine origin of all scripture for the straightforward reason that he believed it. And what he believed in and taught is true. So some conclusions as we come to an end. The first is to accept the, uh, the Christian, to accept the authority of the Bible is the Christian thing to do because it's what Christ requires of us. The traditional view of Scripture, that it's God's word written down, may be called the Christian view precisely because it's Christ's view of Scripture. And secondly, what shall we do with the problems? I mean, is this view intellectually tenable today? Can intelligent people today believe the Bible is true in all that it affirms? Well, forgive me if I've shared my experience before. I never studied religious studies at school. I went to a particularly secular grammar school and we just had one period a week. It was about the only subject we didn't have to do an exam in. So needless to say, we mucked around. When it came to applying to university, I sat my scholarship exams in history to go to Oxford. In my naivety, I thought I'd study theology instead of history because I wanted to know more about what I believed and why, which was the most naive decision I've ever made in my life. During the course of the first term, the authority of scripture was implicitly undermined in just about every essay I had to do. The Christian doctrine I had to study was the atonement, the cross, and its significance and meaning. And by the end of the first term, I thought, is this some kind of systematic destruction of my faith? And I can remember sitting in the college library at the end of the first term with the examination decrees in front of me, switching from Arabic to zoology and everything in between, thinking, could I change to do this? Could I change to do that? But I realized that Jesus Christ had been true in my experience and my knowledge to date. And I knew that uh, he must also be intellectually true. I simply had to commit my mind to his mind and to get help from other sources so that I too could defend the orthodox Christian view intellectually. Of course, numerous questions arose quicker than I could ever answer them. Some I had to park for the time being on the shelf, as it were. But if I didn't know, I could ask a friend or a mentor who did. And so these problems gradually got ticked off and solved. What turned out to be the most intellectually challenging time of my life as a Christian also happened to be evangelistically the most fruitful time in my life. In my own college, which had just at that time 240 undergraduates, all men, 60 were in the Christian Union, and most of them were converts to the Christian faith. 
You see, it is only orthodox Christianity which recognizes the authority of Scripture. Only that has the power to genuinely transform the life of one who is estranged from Christ to one who is in Christ. Now, Dan and John are two examples from my college, which was called, is called St. Peter's. Now, at Oxford, not every undergraduate is the same. If you look at that photograph, if you yourself went to Oxford or probably Cambridge, you can immediately tell which one is the cleverest. I don't know who any of those people are. I just got that off the internet the other day. But the girl is the cleverest. Because all their gowns are not the same length, are they? The girl's one is longer because she's a scholar. The rest are commoners, as they're called. The plebs, if you like. That's what it means, literally. The girl is the bright spark. She's the scholar. Most are commoners. In fact, over 90% of undergraduates are commoners. But uh, no prizes for guessing that I had the shorter gown. But my two best friends in the college CU, Dan and John, were scholars. They got an extra £60 a year for being clever. It didn't make much difference to them in those days. They had to pay more for their gown than ours. After it's got a bit more material in it. But uh, the significance lies in what they did after university. They went on to run some of the most prestigious institutions in the world. So... Uh, John, who's on the right, his dad was a dock labourer in Newcastle, but he himself was just born clever, and he's just retired as the senior tutor of Eton College. He's, he was in charge of all the teaching staff, as well as himself teaching politics and economics to the likes of David Cameron and Boris Johnson. Dan grew up in Jamaica. He got a scholarship to Oxford, and then to uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the United States, which is usually ranked highest amongst universities of the world, where until last year he was dean of undergraduates. As a rocket scientist, or to give him his proper title, professor of aeronautics, astronautics and engineering systems, he has during his lifetime been the chief scientist of the United States Air Force, on the board of NASA, the Space Agency, and the board of science, one of 20 scientists selected to advise the president. Now, you don't get to hold those positions if you are stupid. And yet, both those guys take the same view of scripture today as Jesus Christ did, and as I've outlined to you this evening. Do not think that this view of scripture is for ignorant idiots. Some of the most intelligent people in the world today hold it. Now, if you think, okay, other intelligent people don't, that either tells you they haven't investigated thoroughly, or it's not intellect which is stopping them from becoming Christians. It's much more likely to be their will. And thirdly and finally... Um, in this uh, question of authority concerns the lordship of Christ. Jesus says, you call me teacher and lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am.
John 13, 13. If Jesus Christ is truly our teacher and our Lord, we are under both his instruction and his authority. We must therefore bring our mind in subjection to him as our teacher and our will in subjection to him as our Lord. We have no liberty to disagree with him or to disobey him. So we bow to the authority of scripture because we bow to the authority of Christ. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may ever embrace and hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.